Well, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, if you've just joined us, uh, we've been doing these in-depth in Bible studies, and we decided that this time around, this fall, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter. It's known as an epistle of grace, and we talked about our author, Peter, who certainly knows firsthand what grace is all about, and we talked about that. He opens this letter and a greeting, and I, just, I want you to see this again, because we're going to tease out some points here even this morning. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, it's from Peter, an apostle, to those temporarily residing uh, abroad. These Christians that are out there, uh, and the temporary residing is not that they are exiles uh, or refugees, but rather he's saying, listen, this is not our home. And he's going to come back to that time and time again, because these, these people are suffering for their faith. And it's a great reminder to know, no, this isn't it. And he says, who are chosen at the end of verse 1, which is very significant. And we talked about that term, which we're going to see again today. It doesn't mean that, um, well, that they are elect. And he said in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. It's not that God chose them because he knew they would choose him. Rather, it, it is that he selected them uh, on his own accord. And we'll, we'll see that as we come out through that. But this whole section, as we looked at this... Um, by the way, I should have commented earlier on this too. Uh, the Mike Thickpin event, this is the executive director of ETS. If you haven't signed up, many have. We only have about 30 spots left. So this is open to anyone. This is really a who's who to have someone of this caliber uh, come and speak to us in a smaller setting in this very room is pretty significant. So it's free. It's not a fundraiser. So love to have you come to that. But anyway, that's a side note. As we look at 1 Peter, the very opening, we looked at our salvation, those first uh, approximately 12 verses or so that we looked at last week. We saw that a promise has been given. That is our inheritance, our salvation that results in joy, right, that comes from that. And we said that there's a privilege seen here as Peter highlights the privileges that the Old Testament prophets look to the very thing that we now enjoy, which is spectacular. As you might expect, with doctrine in the New Testament comes duty. In other words, Paul talks about in Romans 12, this is your reasonable service. Based on this, what do we need to be doing? And the next several verses, all the way through verse 25 of chapter 1, he's going to deal, and this is what we're going to address today, are four commands. The first is setting our hope on things above, walking in holiness, as we're going to see, uh, a call for reverence in how we walk, how we live, and the command to love. So we're going to see these four commands as we move through this. So let's look at the text, starting in verse 13. Therefore, that is very significant in the Greek. It's like taking a grappling hook and throwing it back and pulling it up. In other words, all that we just discussed, that is our salvation, therefore, based on that, and again, it's typical of the New Testament writers to deal with doctrine, then duty. They both go hand in hand. Um, just a side note, the, often the problem is when that is not kept in balance, we have a real problem. Uh, if we have a real focus on doctrine and no duty, we've become the frozen chosen. If it's all about duty and no doctrine, then we're as loosey-goosey as they come. Uh, and that's where often heresies arise. Uh, verse 13, though, says, Get your minds ready for action by being fully sober and set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
If you're saying that phrase sounds familiar, yep, he said it in verse 7. He's going to say it several times in this book, Jesus Christ is being revealed. You can't help but wonder, think about this man, Peter, the author, right? He saw Jesus revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the, the post-resurrected Christ as well. And you can't help but think that's what's driving him. I just can't wait to see him again in all his glory. You know? He says, like obedient children, do not comply with the evil urges you used to follow in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, sound familiar? Become holy as yourselves in all of your conduct, for it is written, and he quotes from Leviticus, you shall be holy because I am holy. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, live out the time of your temporary residence, there it is, you're scattered abroad, here in reverence. You know that from your empty way of life, and that phrase is usually used of idolatry, which tells us, I think, that our audience is predominantly Gentile. Inherited from your ancestors, you were ransomed not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by precious blood like that of the unblemished and spotless lamb, namely Christ. That is the second time he's referred to the blood of Christ. He did it in verse 2 of chapter 1, and now he brings it back here as well. He was foreknown. There's the same term he used of us when God chose us back in verses 1 and 2. God foreknew this, and he also foreknew. That's why the term can't be that we selected. He knew what we were going to do, so he chose us. No, 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 no. Uh, that's not how the term is. It simply means chosen. Before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times. Again, verse 10 brought this out. For your sake, through him you now trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. You have purified your souls by obeying the truth in order to show sincere mutual love. So love one another earnestly with a pure heart. You've been born anew, not from perishable, but from the imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God, namely the gospel, by the way. That's the immediate context here. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was proclaimed to you. Let's look at this. There are four, in, in Greek, there's a, a tense that's used, it's a mood, it's called the imperative, and it's a mood for command. And there are four imperatives, the rest are all hinged on this. And so we're going to see these, that's the four commands. The first of these, seen here in verse 13, is a call to hope. This isn't the first time we've seen hope. In fact, we saw in verse 3, we see it here in verse 13, and we'll see it later in chapter, it almost bookends this whole section, is that of hope. Uh, and what a message this audience needs when their hope is waning in the midst of persecution, right? Uh, and maybe you can relate to that. He says, get your minds ready. The, the only imperative here in the Greek is set your hope. Getting ready for action and being sober are, are the means by which you set your hope. In other words, and I mentioned this there in your notes, and you can see this uh, concerning hope, is to, um, is to be mentally resolved and prepared. Paul mentions this in Romans 12 too, Do not be conformed to this present world, 
but be transformed by your what? Renewing your mind. The Christian life will never be one if you are just waiting for the next temptation to arise and you think, I'll tackle it when it comes. Uh uh. You have to be proactive. The text is very clear about that in the New Testament. The New Testament is also clear. It begins and it ends, I would argue, in the mind. We have to be, men, we have to be attentive to what goes in and out of our, our brain. What do you think about? What do you dwell upon? Uh, I, I mean, I, I find myself telling my kids when they do something that's a little less than smart, I mean, what, what were you thinking? I, 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 can't, I can't help but God saying to us sometimes, what, what are you thinking? You know better than that. What, what are you dwelling on? What are you thinking about? Because as Paul states, the renewing of your mind so that, here's the purpose, you may test and approve what is the will of God. If you don't know, how can you be able to assess what is good and well-pleasing and perfect? And Schreiner in his commentary says, thinking in a new way does not happen automatically. He is so correct about that. It requires effort, concentration, and intentionality, and it doesn't end <laughs> at age 20 or at age 40 or at age 70. It's an ongoing. And the first thing we say, hey, call to hope, it's, it's being, so that's why he says be sober. You don't do anything that might tent your thinking. We have some folks we know the man just had an affair, and he said, well, I went to a bar, I got drunk, and I, I wasn't thinking. Yeah, stupid on several fronts. And now there's a wake of destruction, and you're going, yeah. The text is, be fully sober and set your hope completely on the grace that we brought. You don't want anything to cloud your thinking when it comes to the Christian life, right? That's what the text is saying. And, and Paul reiterates that in Romans 12. So interesting that it also springs out of that whole issue with doctor. I mean, he spends 11 chapters dealing with justification in Romans. And then he starts here and he says, now, based on that, renew the mind. Think about the doctrine. I mean, think about what Jesus told the church at Ephesus. They had lost their first love, right? What did he say? Remember where Christ has brought you. Go back to the thinking process. Think about your doctrine. It is not a four-letter word. <laughs> I, I hear, especially young people, oh, doctrine, you know, it's fundamentalism. It's no, 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 no. There's a place for doctrine, and it's vital that we are dwelling on those things. Well, I'm starting to preach, so I'll move. But a call to hope is the first imperative. The second one is found in the next three verses, and that is to be holy. Right? Like obedient children do not comply with the evil urges, but like the Holy One who called you, become holy. Later, he's going to talk about that Holy One. In fact, he does even in the immediate context of verse 17. Uh, he's your father. If you're his offspring, you need to, to look and act like the father. He gives several uh, conditions or contents of the command, and I've laid these out for you in your notes. The first of these is the manner in which we live holy. We're not to be passive. Once again, we see this and. And for Peter, it would be anathema, and I would say it's true for all the New Testament writers. If you claim to have faith and there's no works, we got a real problem. Works don't save, but they are evidence of your, 
of faith of your salvation. Uh, James mentions that, doesn't he? Faith without works is dead. So the manner of living is spelled out here. The, the, the model he gives for this command, of course, is the Lord, quoting from Leviticus. He says, God is holy. You got to be holy. This is, this is interesting. This is why you have to, to learn the original languages. Look at verse 2. Go back to verse 2. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, this is referring to believers, by being set apart. Do you realize that that term is a cognate? It's a derivation of holiness. You've been made holy positionally before the Lord, but also we need to have an ongoing working out our salvation is what he's addressing here. But isn't that great? Uh, we are seen as holy. Christ's righteousness is added to our account. But the model for living, because you've been set apart, live accordingly. He says, be holy in this. He also gives us the extent, doesn't he? He says in all things, whether it's our public lives or our private lives, whether it's Sunday or Tuesday morning at work. <laughs> I said, I wrote down here, in front of the family or in front of the computer and all things to be holy. In fact, if you're struggling with what you're looking at on the computer, engrave that sucker on the front of the screen. Put a sticker there, be holy as I am holy. It might give you pause. <laughs> um, yeah, at least guilt. I love it. Yeah, well, whatever. Whatever works, right? You got the manner, you got the model, you got the extent. And he also gives us the basis. In fact, it's two-pronged here in the text, I would argue. The basis is, number one, God called us. You have the privilege of being one of his chosen, and with those privileges comes responsibility, is what he's saying. Right? And by the way, Christianity is not a bunch of do's and don'ts, is it? <laughs> I do what I do because I love the one who called me. That, that's what Christianity is about. And then second, to summons to walk in holiness is grounded in Scripture. He's quoting from Leviticus. This, this is a tried and true statement. <laughs> You're to be holy. And so why do we do what we do? It's because God has called us. It's one of the things that my wife and I really work with with our kids. I don't want them to be performance-based uh, in their walk with God. Um, I'm very grateful for my ultra-conservative upbringing. Uh, I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but with that can breed um, uh, some issues, can't it? Um, and, and for our kids, it's like, no, the reason we want you to obey, the reason you, you want to do what is right is because God loves you and you love Him. This is what's significant. That's what drives our actions. And so trying to instill that into our kids. They know this is, if you claim to be Jesus, you don't talk that way. You don't treat others that way. And on the list goes. And so set your hope, he says, if you've got this great salvation, live in holiness, right? And he gives us a third command here. And the third one is to live in reverence. Notice what he says here in verse 17. If you address the father who who impartially judges according to each one's work, live out your residence here in reverence. Uh, the good old term here is fear. 
What does that mean in the New, Old and New Testament? When it says fear God, what are we talking about? Honor, respect. Yeah, honor, respect. Yeah, I stole your answer. So good, Rick. Uh, anyone else? I'm sorry? I heard a voice in the wilderness. Yes, yes, good. All right, great. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned there in your notes a quote from a, a dictionary uh, of biblical theology. Uh, Porter writes, The fear of God may well include a recognition of the futility of human opposition to the divine. I mean, let's face it. What can you do before an almighty God? And if you don't question that, just look at the last storm that we've been experiencing in the United States. The hand of God, that's nothing to what he can do. Especially for those who are God's enemies. But for those who follow God, fear grows from the respect and honor of which God is worthy as God. If he did all this for us, called us before the foundation of the world through his, the blood of his son and the spirit serving as a down payment, this is the least we can do. In fact, we should fear him. He gives several reasons for this, and this is great. I, I love this. So if you don't get anything else this morning, I, I love what he says here. First of all, he goes, our lives are brief. You're going, thanks. I didn't need to be told that. But he says it's because you're going to face the judge. And who's the judge in the end? God the Father, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is going to be revealed, just as he's highlighted twice already in chapter 1. Christ is the judge. Christ paid the, the price. He can do the judging, and he will. God has given that responsibility to him. Why does Peter refer, notice this, he refers to the one as father, and he also refers to the role of judge. Why would he use those two terms? They seem so diametrically opposed. What's he trying to accomplish there? When you think of father, what do you think of in Scripture? Not maybe the experience that you've had. A father is seen as what in the Scriptures? Like Jesus refers to God, Father, about, a, what is it, 140 times? Best interest, someone, yes, authority, discipline. But someone who cares for you is the idea here. That it's, it's watching after you to be called the children, to be able to call God Abba. This, this intimate relationship. And then over here, this judge seems cold and distant. But they go hand in hand, don't they? And he's kind of given us both ends of the spectrum here about this God that we will face. And uh, it's just very interesting that he intertwines the son and the father here. It's interesting. But secondly, he says, we live our lives in deep gratitude to God. We've been saying this time and time again, but the text reiterates this here, doesn't it? I wrote in your notes, our inheritance was extremely costly. That's Christ's blood. It was well thought out as he talks about how his plans of times past. We already seen that earlier with the Old Testament prophets, and it is personal. God has much at stake for you to be called his children, uh, and that was his own son. So that's the second reason for the command to live in reverence. And third, we can rest with certainty God will fulfill his promises. He highlights that here in this text doesn't he? He says, through him you now trust you, you, in God who, verse 
21, raised him from the dead and gave him glory. He, he assured Christ of it, and he did it. And based on that resurrection, we have evidence of his power. We have evidence of his love. And that is the God we serve. So very significant here. Questions on, on this third command that he lays out? Call to set your hope. Call to walk in holiness. The third here, as we see, is to, to live in fear of God Almighty and reverence. And he gives us one more, which is interesting, because the first three deal more with our relationship with God. The last one is taking us out in, in how we interact with others. And by the way, these four commands, these only, the only four imperatives here in First uh, Peter, I will argue, chapter 1, are going to be the springboard for everything we're going to address as we move through this book. Because he's going to have a whole section. Uh, it's one of the reasons we <laughs> selected this. There's a whole section on men as being husbands, if you're married, and what does that entail? There's a whole issue on, on relationships with those in the community, etc. But the mandate to love, I quoted David's in his commentary, no, this is no minor issue, but a central concern of both our author and the whole New Testament. In fact, John writes in 1 John, if you don't love others, you don't love God. Uh, he's, it's all very clear. It's, it's black and white for John. This is where we are. And so this mandate to love, as we see, it's interesting. The goal of our salvation is love, I would argue. Notice what he says here in verse 22. You have purified your souls, which assumes our authors, are, our readers are what? Believers or non-believers? Believers. I'm sorry? Okay, great question. The, the, the question is, how do we purify ourselves? There is two. One is we are sanctified, set apart at salvation. That is, we are declared holy or purified. There's also this idea that we, we live out our salvation, walk in obedience, and that's also a purification process, process of, of a progressive sanctification is what theologians call it. The issue here is, in verse 22, it's a perfect tense. In other words, in the Greek, he's saying, you have been purified. It was a past event with ongoing effect. Isn't that amazing? I don't know about you, but to think, when God called you and you responded in faith, you're seen as righteous before a holy God. Christ paid all of your sin. Now think about that for a minute. And when God sees you, even as cruddy as Hophedes can be at times, and I... Oh, I said that, uh, I responded that way. I'm still seen as righteous before an almighty God because of Christ. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences for sin. I'm not saying that. But he says, you've been purified by obeying the truth. And in other words, you responded in order to show sincere, in order to, this is the purpose so that you show mutual love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's, that's amazing. And then he comes back to this, and, and I mentioned this in your notes. Uh, in fact, down at the bottom, verses 24 and 25, he quotes from Isaiah 40, which is spectacular. I, I mentioned this before. When a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament text, you want to go back and look at the context. That is so significant. Uh, it's not going to be very long, and I'll pull out the plants out of the pots 
on our back step. And you know what happens when you pull out a plant out of a pot. All the dirt comes with it. That's what you need to do with an Old Testament text and the New. When you see an Old Testament text, you want to go look at the context because that's what our writers, our New Testament writers are thinking about. And that's the case here. Because what, what is the context of Isaiah 40? It's about God's promise to those who are exiled that he will deliver them. He will care for them. Isn't that great? I can't help, but you have to, you see this here in this, this passage, and I mentioned this in your notes. No government, community, or individual can thwart the plans and promises of God. And, and I wrote, this assurance should only foster us a greater love. Why? Why should it foster a greater love? Why is it significant that Peter says the word of God does not fail in the context of loving one another? What's the significance there? They're being persecuted, all right? So there's assurance to persevere in the faith. What else? Which entails loving one another. Not looking out for yourself, self-preservation here in the midst of suffering. Uh, what else? It's for our righteousness, all right? Being pure in the midst of it. Why talk about the word of God endures forever in the context of loving one another? Tim. His promises are everlasting. Not only his promises, but also his command to love one another. So the word of God that commands us to live this way is not going to falter. And, and our judge, though he is your father, is, is an impartial judge. <laughs> He's not going to show favoritism because you, you scored a certain IQ or your sales this month was so good. That's not going to matter. Um, uh, this, just food for thought there. You know, in the midst of talking about loving one another, he, he roots it in the idea the word of the Lord does not falter. It endures forever. So what do we see? Because of our glorious salvation, we're given four commands, right? We are commanded to set our hope. We just saw that first one, a call to hope, an edict for holiness, a command to live in reverence, and the fourth is a mandate to love. All of it's couched in this idea that we are looking at that which is eternal. This is not our home. To the readers, there's a big amen over here. Thank goodness, right? And I don't know about you, but I have to admit, that's the same. <laughs> you know, um, no more suffering, no more pain, no more crud. And it's being with those who've gone before, no more goodbyes, right? Um, what a day that'll be. On the last page, well, actually, there's two pages, two last pages. <laughs> page four is something you can do on your own or with another man in the group or with your spouse or if you're, if you're married or with um, a child. But it, it's just some additional ways to think through this material. We, we were doing that because a couple guys said, hey, could you give us something during the week to run with? And so that's there for you. Uh, if you don't want to make a paper airplane or something, I don't know. But page three is significant uh, for us this morning. <clears throat> I, I stayed at the top, as followers of Jesus, we need to be living our lives with an eternal perspective 
And then I ask, how do we specifically live out the non-perishable outlook? Not focusing on that which is perishable, but which is non-perishable. And I've given us several areas to think about. How does it affect the first of these? And I've given some text, some guys out there. The first of these deals with finances. If someone would read Luke 12 that I gave it to, I don't know who that is. Steve? Yep. So, uh, where are your treasures, right? Uh, Rick was saying that his, his stepdad owned a, a, a funeral home, and I bet you never saw any hearses uh, hauling a U-Haul, right? You can't take it with you, but the treasure that, that Luke's talking about is treasure with eternal dividends. <laughs> you were talking about an investment plan. There it is, right? Uh, it's... How are you thinking uh, with your finances, your resources? You know, I love the investors because, you know, what happens when you're 80 and, you know, this is your standard of living? And well, what about when you're 180 or 280? What are you doing with those investments? Thinking even beyond the grave. Well, yeah, there you go. Keep on going, right? Here's another, uh, an issue of, of when it comes to eternal is time management. I gave a, who has Matthew 6? Paul. Yeah, strive first for the kingdom. Um, I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are here studying the word on the 7 o'clock in the morning. Keep it up. Uh, but... I meet guys that are more, more interested in playing golf on Sunday than attending church. That's crazy. Look out. Thinking of time management, where do you put not only your, your pocketbook, but where do you put your day timer when it, thinking eternally? How does that affect your schedule? Here's another. Personal relationships. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Someone read that text. Did you catch that? His eschatology is woven in with his ethics. That you'll be blameless when Christ comes, and what is the command? Abound in love, right? And it's Paul's prayer for them. When's the last time you prayed that for a group of believers? May you abound in love, right? <laughs> There's an interesting one for you. And the cause is that, that the Lord may do this for you. You can't do it on your own accord. This is a supernatural thing. What's the fruit of the Spirit? One of them is love, right? True love. To blade, as the Prince's Bride used to say. Well, let me move on. Conversation, our, our speech, Colossians 4. Who's got this text? Yes, Kyle. Yeah, time is short. I'm sure you've read those lists, you know, five regrets from people who are about to die. And, and what do they talk about in the last 30 days of their life? Well, time is short. 
What part of your conversation needs to be removed? What do you need to be talking about? There's a, another thing to think about uh, this week. And thinking eternal perspective is a matters of conversation. And finally, where is the real kicker for most of us is 2 Corinthians 10, and that is our thought life. Yeah, Greg? taking every captive or every thought captive. We are in a spiritual battle. I didn't need you to, I didn't need to tell you that this morning, but it's a spiritual battle that has eternal consequences. And as Paul said in Romans 12, this is our reasonable service. So, it's a laundry list and it's a little daunting. I challenge you to just take one of those this week and say, "Okay, this is an area that I'm really going to address." What, if I have an eternal perspective, how is it going to affect, let's say you deal with the thought life? What does that mean? Be concrete. Don't be willy-nilly. I just need to love Jesus more. What in the world does that mean? Uh, nail that sucker down. And, and how does it affect, whether it's your thought life, time management, etc. Where do you see an eternal perspective playing out and where does it need to be fine-tuned? Right? So that is it better here or here? You can say it's right here, 2020. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, most importantly, for our salvation. And as Peter has highlighted, this indeed is our reasonable service. If we realize all that you've done for us, what is that to, to set our hope, to, to walk in love, to be holy, and to fear you? Lord, be with these men today. Guide them as they walk with you. Help us all in our love for one another and our desire to please you. We thank you and we praise you. And the one who shed his blood, uh, the Lamb of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.